Welcome to The Docket, your weekly legal podcast. That releases thrice annually. You can't prove it, oh, oh. You got nothing legit, oh, oh. The glove don't fit, oh, oh. You gotta equip, oh, oh. I didn't smoke it, oh, oh. That's all you're gonna get, oh, oh. I'll never admit, oh, oh. I never took a hit, oh, oh. The charges won't stick, cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday, catch me if you can. Welcome to the docket, episode 134. I think it's been a long time. I'm Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tamman. Hey, Emily Tamman. How are you? I'm getting by. How are you? Good. What's happened since February? Many things. Many, 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 many things. Welcome to The Docket, your weekly legal podcast. That releases thrice annually. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a really, 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 really busy time. It always is, but, you know, we're finally getting around to recording a podcast, so just be grateful that it's out. Or not, depending on how you feel about the podcast, I guess, but you're listening, so. It's good. (laughs) Enough. I think we, um, so the last episode we released was in February, and then we went on like a bit of a hiatus because I had some baking to do. You, I forget if we even talked about it here i did you maybe mention the fact that you had tweeted like a threat that you were going to apply to the great canadian baking show and i mean i forget if you mentioned it at the time because i can't remotely recall the timing of it but you basically uh threw down a gauntlet and said if 500 people like this tweet i'm going to apply not thinking that 500 people would and 500 people did and then i applied and then one thing led to another and i found myself almost on the great canadian baking show (laughs) You made it quite far in the process. It was really fun, but it was so much work. And I think it was ultimately a relief that you were not selected. And they probably also <laughs> could tell that your capacity is quite limited. I mean, if you can only I put a podcast out like it. thrice annually, like how can you dedicate weeks of your life to baking? But it would have been fun. Yeah, it got out of hand real quick. I put out a tweet. It got a bunch of likes. Then I applied and I was like, not serious in my application. I was like pretty jokey. Yeah, but they're looking for that. Probably. They like that. And then I had to do an interview on Zoom with the producers and have things that I baked there. And then I passed that stage as well. And then I had to bake live, sort of like an episode at an hour to do a dish and come up with a recipe. And it was really, really fun. But you showcased some cool stuff. You showcased like some lemon tartlets, a like, what was it? 12 stranded loaf, a braided loaf, um, a really tasty three layered cake with like dates and dried apples that had those caramel coated apple balls on top that was delicious, a s'mores cake. And then the most beautiful raspberry tart, raspberry mousse tart that I've ever seen with dried rose petals and pistachios and a white chocolate pistachio ganache. It was amazing. It was a lot of work to um, then be chosen to be away from the family for and my practice for six weeks while I undergo the most stressful process ever. I think someone said, what could possibly go wrong taking the thing that you do to relieve stress and do it in a high pressure public environment? Like... I'm actually sort of very relieved. Yeah, it would have been fun. The process was really fun. I I mean, it was stressful, but it was fun. 
But you haven't been baking much since, so let's get back on the program. You no, know, I, need gotta... to, I need to bake some stuff for the grade 8 graduation. Yes, I think I was voluntold I, to do some things. I was just going to say, thankfully, I voluntold you to make uh, macaron in the school colors. So that's going to be this weekend's project. And it will be nice to see you back in the kitchen where you belong. It was funny when the producer called and he was like, you know, there was you were in the top 15, but we can only choose 12. You know, sometimes like... People often have to apply multiple years in a row to get in. And I was like, oh, my friend, this was a joke that went too far. Like, But it wasn't totally you. a joke. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, like, you know, impugn the baking show or anything. Like, you don't think the show is a joke and like being on it would have been a privilege. I mean, it was a joke in the sense that you really didn't think you had a chance of making it far. It wasn't a joke like, you know, poo-pooing the Great Canadian Baking Show, a show which we adore. Um but yes, it, it was a joke. Ask me to bake a Genoese sponge. I don't know how to do that. It would have been a disaster. Listeners, Michael Spratt is a excellent and very talented baker. And in particular, what I think he would have brought to the show, like aside from his obvious charm and humor, is that he actually is quite good at picking up a recipe for the first time and completely nailing it. So maybe you should apply for Nailed It. No. 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 No, because you nail it for real. Anyway, is it, is it cake? All of that is to say that I think you're a stellar baker, and I um, have been lucky enough to enjoy the fruits of your baking labors. But so that contributed to our lack of uh, episodes, as did our incredibly busy practice and family life and stuff. But yes, I had my first appearance in the Supreme Court of Canada in that time oh, as, yeah. as well as uh, representing the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, who intervened in R versus Sharma. You can go into our back catalog to learn more about that case because we discussed it at the time that the Ontario Court of Appeal decision was released. Um, but so that was very fun, although it was by Zoom and that was a little bit disappointing because um, there was just such stellar counsel on for uh, Sharma, for the many, many interveners. Um, and it would have been really fun to have them all come to Ottawa, a kind of legal convoy of sorts that I would have welcomed with open arms and happily gone for beers with after or a cocktail. Uh, but so that was very fun. That was back in March. Um, of course, the Supreme Court heard um, the case about the intoxication defense or extreme intoxication defense, section 33.1, arising from the Sullivan and Shannon and Brown cases. You can also go back into our back catalog to hear about the Court of Appeal decision in that case. There was the debacle I tried to avoid it. It was so awful. I hate it so much. And I'm sort of glad we didn't podcast about it because I'm actually sort of sick of people trying to monetize the and, and use the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial to popularize their brand and social media clout. It was a shit show. I'm glad we missed that. I didn't even personally follow it at all because I, I tried not the whole to. thing exploitative and awful. The Supreme Court released its decision in RV Bissonnette to do with uh, consecutive life sentences, which I think we also somewhere in our back catalog have an episode about that. The Honorable Justice Louise Arbour released her report on uh, the military inquiry, sexual misconduct stuff. Um, we may still try to have her on the podcast to talk about that because I think... Do you think, think we can get her? I think we can, I mean, she's a friend of the podcast, friend of the fam, 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 fam of the fam. 
Um, but I think, like, yes, it got some attention when it was released, but it's a very um, substantial and lengthy report. And, um, you know, you can only go into so much detail in a short media interview. So it would be great. She's been traveling basically ever since, not for pleasure, of course, but just <laughs> on various work-related commitments. But um, when she's back in Canada, maybe we can see if we can set aside some time to chat about that, because I think it would be of interest. The Liberal government's Bill C-5 passed the House and is now in the Senate, the bill that partially removes some mandatory minimum sentences. Um, we also talked about that on a past episode. I think at the time it was called Bill... C-23? Something like that? Something like that. It was the... the um, when it was tabled before the last election and then it died on the order papers. And Does was, a really bad job um, dealing with drugs and the opioid epidemic and things like that um and, and the way they talk about it ugh. is just insufferable like we're taking action finally to end you know systemic discrimination in the justice system like come on it's a baby step it's an important step i don't want to take that away like it's fine what they're doing it's just they're characterizing as it as though it's like a silver bullet that's gonna address everything when in fact they've still left dozens and dozens of uh, mandatory minimum punishments in the criminal code intact. Yeah, and all drug offenses. Including some that have already been found unconstitutional. Seriously, let's say it one more time. Their solution to the opioid ap- epidemic and and drug offenses is to give the police more discretion to charge or not charge, which is not a very good solution. No. We also missed some pretty big news stories like the Toronto uh, Police Service, um, you know, formally recognizing what was apparent to anyone with lived experience and anyone who actually paid attention to anything going on, that there is systemic racism in the police force and how they deploy force and who they arrest and how they arrest people. And then they turned around and offered an apology that nobody asked for or wanted in the sense that, um, you know, it's it, this issue has been so well understood for so long by so many that an apology is not what's needed. What's needed is concrete action and some kind of indication that something's going to be done. And so far, we haven't seen any of that. Speaking about a lack of action on that front, um, Doug Ford was reelected. Oh, man, it has been a while. Um, We almost got the glorious, glorious half victory of having one half of the double Ds. Doug Downey loses seat, but he pulled it out in the last (laughs) little while. So the attorney general uh, remains alive. Perhaps we'll take this moment to give a little shout out to our local MPP, Joel Harden, who was reelected. Uh, I was able to support his campaign a little bit, uh, not as much as I would have liked given my employment status. I was unemployed during his last campaign, so I was quite involved, but I did run a zone house on election day, a get out, part of the get out the vote campaign. And I would just like to say, and I'm not taking credit for this, of course, although I was involved in the get out the vote effort, but Joel Harden, our local MPP reelected, received more votes than any candidate for any party in the entire province. Seriously? So shout out to Joel, the only candidate in the entire province who got more than 30,000 votes. Bravo to Joel. Bravo to Joel's incredible campaign manager, Samia Reyeda, who is an absolute treasure and a gem and worked incredibly hard and deserves more accolades than she's getting. And the entire team, it was a really huge accomplishment and I'm very proud of all of them. Yay, Joel. So a silver lining on a disappointing election night for me personally, because Doug Ford and Doug Downey and his gang of conservatives are unprincipled and terrible. Yeah, Stephen Lecce, that education minister. Seriously, he's for the people. If the people are police forces who need more money and more powers and less oversight. 
So, I mean, I think the moral of the story is that we don't need to release a weekly podcast. We can just sit here and in like six minutes summarize a huge amount of developments in law and politics over the course of the past like five months. This is the depth of coverage and analysis that our listeners um, expect and uh, may I say it deserve. But seriously, I mean, I was commenting about the back catalog episodes but as some of those things were happening and we were like hey we should do a podcast about this it's like but we kind of already did do a podcast about this and the, de- the decision was upheld by the supreme court so like it's a story in the media and like for journalists but i'm not sure how much more we really have to contribute on our analysis on those things in particular because like with bissonette with um uh sullivan and chan and 331 33.1 of the criminal code those were not like super contentious issues, I don't think, like legally. Like the legal issues, like it's not surprising that the decisions were upheld because I don't think anyone was really surprised by the Court of Appeal decisions either. So, I mean, just saying, not sure we could have added much more. But today's episode, I think, is really interesting and different. Yeah, I want to call him... Um... A nemesis, a nemesi, going back 13 years um, of, look, I may have written a couple things during the Duffy scandal that maybe reflected negatively on our guests. But I have to say that over the the last decade, uh, I've been following this person's um, evolution in thinking, uh, his career, and I think it's a great example that... um, and, you know, people, and, and I don't think I would agree with this guest on everything, um, but certainly I think we agree on more now. And I think it goes to show that people can change their minds, and that's something that shouldn't be ignored and should be celebrated, especially in the political realm. Like, we often talk about politicians flip-flopping, and, you know, when you take time to consider an idea and you change your position and you have a good reason for changing the position, that can be sort of a noble and a good thing. A hundred percent. I actually really don't like it when people are called hypocritical for changing their views on things. And I similarly don't appreciate it when, in particular, elected officials refuse to change their views on things because, for example, they made a campaign promise. Like, if I remember correctly, and I'm, I'm prepared to stand to be corrected, but I seem to recall that Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, in the context of the um, opioid crisis and supervised consumption sites, had indicated that he was opposed to them during an election campaign. And despite like a significant evolution at the time in our understanding of harm reduction and the role that it has to play, um, essentially like at the time anyway, kind of stuck to his initial position because of the fact that he had indicated that he was against it. But I mean, you get new information. It's a flip flop is when you move from one position that you feel to be politically expedient to another one solely because you feel that it is now more politically expedient in one way or another. But when you learn, and you change your mind, I think it's admirable and courageous to say so. And that's what um, our guest today has done. And it's easy, I think, to, you know, tear someone down saying like, why didn't you see the light earlier? You know, you created a lot of harm. And, you know, I think that there should be room for um, people to change, especially um, when they recognize that they were in a position to change things. And they caused harm through through their position and they're ready to make uh, reparations for that and do so publicly. I think it's a good thing. So I was really happy uh, to have uh, Benjamin Perrin, uh, former chief legal advisor to Stephen Harper, um, a huge back in 
2010, 11, 12, 13, when he was with Stephen Harper, uh, proponent of minimum sentences, the war on drugs, um, in favor of shutting down safe consumption sites, uh, a real crime and punishment sort of political ideologue. And um, he's changed his position. On a number of those things. And I admire him for not only doing so, but for um, putting himself out there and wanting to publicly say that he feels that he was wrong. I think in the hopes that he can change some minds of people who continue to share the views that he previously held. That's right. And I'm, this isn't someone who's, you know, um, just saying that he was wrong. Um, uh, ben Barron is written books, done studies, has pursued things academically. And, you know, I'm certain that there's probably some baggage there. And um, I doubt that we would agree on everything. I think it would be unhealthy if anyone agreed with me on everything. Um, but I really appreciate the fact that, you know, despite the fact during the Mike Duffy scandal, I might have written some things that <laughs> reflected Nicolivi on him, that he would come on the podcast and have like a really good conversation. And um, I was really happy to give him the space. And I think the topic of decriminalization, safe supply, how we treat uh, addiction and, you know, the concurrent issues of mental health and poverty in, in the criminal code and the harms of criminalization is such an important thing. And if one person can change their mind, someone who was, you know, in the tough on crime movement and sort of indoctrinated in that, I mean, he came up through the Reform Party. Um, if that person can change their mind, it gives me hope that, you know, even if we can't count on politicians to change their mind, that regular people can, and that can spur some change. No, that's right. And, and Ben is now um, a member of the faculty, I believe, at the UBC Allard School of Law. And it is telling that it has taken years of academic um, inquiry and research on his part to come to this position, which is that type of kind of thoughtful deliberation is not always possible or valued in politics. So um, that's why I say again, like, I think it's great that he's trying to share what he's learned. And when we say he's learned, it's not just by reading articles in the newspaper, like he's actually, you know, done academic research and read other people's academic research and changed his views on that basis. So um, I say good on him for wanting to share his knowledge uh, which others, with others who may not have had the opportunity or the inclination to do that kind of reflection. Yeah, so I hope it um, is informative. It can show sort of a journey, how we can change people's minds. And, you know, it gives me hope that we can change people's minds on other things too. So with that, uh, here is Mike's interview with Benjamin Perrin. It was at 7.30 on a Saturday morning, and I didn't want to wake Emily up. I'm really happy to be joined by longtime topic of conversation, uh, maybe back in 2013 when he was counsel to the Prime Minister, uh, Stephen Harper, um, but someone who I have followed very closely, especially when it comes to the topics of decriminalization and drug policy, because I, I think that our guest, who I'm going to introduce, Barry the Lead, introduced very shortly, has some really important things to say, not only on drug policy, but also how we should think about drug policy and you know how we can change minds on drug policy. I'm really happy to be joined by Benjamin Perrin. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the docket. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. 
I was checking out some of uh, your background, um, scrambling around this morning to try to cobble together an introduction. Uh, and there's so much to say. You've had a really interesting and varied career in academia, in politics. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe give us a, a thumbnail sketch of where you've been, uh, where you are, and how you got from uh, point A to point B. Yeah, I guess uh, that's asking me to tell you my life story. So I'm going to be real tight, I guess. Yeah, look, I started in grade, uh, it would have been around grade seven or so. And it was the the speech and debate uh, club. And um, the topic, if you can believe it, I, I remember it, was be it resolved that the Young Offenders Act should be abolished. That was the topic. That's what got me started on this stuff. And then it was a, a scrapbook uh, a few years later. Uh, an election scrapbook as a social studies project in high school. And I, I had to literally track all the political parties and all their policies. I got fascinated. I got completely drawn in. Back then, of course, there's no internet. So you had to watch the news and, you know, take notes and clip headlines. I still have the scrap, scrapbook. It's, it's, it's sitting in my parents' basement. So that was kind of the story. The foray. My real interest in, in public policy was very much driven by the issues. You know, I was fascinated by a whole range of things, but very quickly gravitated towards, you know, criminal justice issues. My mom at one point was working at a center for abused women and kids in Calgary. And I was, um, you know, doing babysitting already for like, you know, pocket change. And she said, hey, look, they need someone to look after these kids while their moms are going to their, you know, group uh, counseling sessions. Do you want to volunteer? And so I did. And that's when I first got my, you know, introduction to to working with victims of crime. And, um, you know, soon after I got involved in politics, I saw politics as the way to, you know, change some of these things. And most of my career was really driven by a real concern for victims of crime. And I would say then a much, a very misplaced idea that what would help them would be tough on crime legislation, uh, in addition to, you know, victims' rights and services. And that that brought me into uh, working in the Reform Party. I was a young a member on the campaign team with uh, people like Ray Novak, who is Prime Minister Stephen Harper's uh, principal secretary, Pierre Polyev, who is, you know, running for the... And they actually heard debated a against, bit about lately. Yeah, I actually debated against him in high school. We were on a t- debate teams in university. So like I got plugged in at age 16 to politics. And for several decades, I was heavily involved. And as you mentioned in the intro, and as people know, I was eventually brought me into the Prime Minister's office as his legal counsel and chief criminal justice advisor. So, you know, that's kind of the recap, but I've been a law professor at UBC since 2007. That's been my main job. I was in PMO for one year as a kind of leave of absence position. And as you mentioned, I have gone through a complete and total transformation on my um, views, I would say, on criminal justice. And I can tell you more about that, but that's the long and the short of it. I mean, one of the ways that I came to know your name was through your involvement with the the Conservative Party when they were in power, um, uh, Stephen Harper's government, because I wrote a lot then about crime and and uh, like sort of the, the law and order issues that seemed to be all that government could legislate. I mean, every other day it was testifying on, you know, mandatory minimum sentences and restricting conditional sentences. And there was, you know, the insight and um, safe consumption sites. It just seemed that every day it was criminal justice issues that didn't seem to solve any problems, but were sort of being used politically, you were sort of embroiled in that. um, And, you know, I think that, you know, quite often that tough on crime approach uh, is something that at least lately has been associated with with sort of the right side of the political spectrum. Uh, And then you left, I I didn't um, hear your name. Um, 
And then all of a sudden I, I saw some tweets where I was like, Jesus, this guy that I think I fundamentally disagreed with on so much um, has been talking about drug uh, issues, um, drug policy issues in, in a way that sort of made sense in, in 2020. I know that uh, you uh, published a book about, about uh, the op opioid epidemic, um, overdose, heartbreak and hope in uh, Canada's uh, opioid crisis. And then um, just uh, this month, um, you had a, a really great opinion piece in the Calgary Herald entitled, uh, I, I used to agree with Kenny and Polyev on criminalizing drug users, but I was wrong. How did you go from a, a position of tough on crime, mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses, deterrence, locking people up, uh, opposing um, safe consumption sites to embracing a, um, a policy approach that recognizes, you know, the harms inherent in, in drug use and treating it as sort of a social and health issue and, and less of a criminal issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to be able to have lived long enough, quite frankly, to change my views on that and be able to, you know, speak out publicly about that. My, um, my sort of views on drug policy as you know, when I was involved in, in conservative uh, politics was very, very facile and simplistic. It's the same views you hear continuing to be spouted by conservative politicians. Um, this is the sum total of it. It's drugs. This is the views, right? Drugs hurt, cause harm and crime. So we should stop them. And the way we do that is by criminalizing them. We criminalize the supply of it. We criminalize people who use them. Supply and demand. If you crunch down on the supply that's going to increase the cost and people are able to afford them and if we you know that, that's the it's all it's all deterrence based and i'll call it econ 101 but it's not even that michael i mean it's not even that advanced okay and so it is um you notice there's no evidence to support any of that i didn't mention any evidence it's all ideology and as you pointed out it's not just that it's that the conservative politicians know and they pull on on this that tough on crime wins votes uh fear gets people to the polls uh, much more than compassion or love ever did, right? And so they know that they've raised funds off that they're continuing to do that. When I, you know, worked in Prime Minister Stephen Harper's office, my main, you know, interest and agenda were on things like victims of crime. I was there with the Victims Bill of Rights Act. That was one of the major pieces I worked on. And as you know, I can't get into the nitty gritty of what I advised on, but I, I absolutely was part of a system and a government which advanced quite aggressively the Canadian version of the war on drugs. And while the government had already uh, unsuccessfully tried to shut down the Insight Supervised Consumption Center in Vancouver, had brought in the Omnibus Crime Bill, which, uh, as you mentioned, brought in all these minimum mandatory minimum penalties for drug-related uh, offenses, that predated my time in PMO. But I don't, I don't say that to say I'm not accountable. I, I firmly believe, and I take the view in, in my life and in my research, that if you have an opportunity to speak up and you don't take it, you're culpable. And, and I really do believe that. And I, that's one of the reasons I'm speaking up now and, and continuing to speak up on this issue, because I did have an opportunity, you know, when you're, when you're a lawyer, I know a lot of people in here who listen to you are lawyers, but others too, you know, when you're an advisor and you don't advise and you're responsible, ultimately the people you're advising make the decisions, but as an advisor, you have a role. And I, I've said before, and I say again, now I deeply regret that I, pursued a, uh, an idea of drug policy, which was driven by this toxic cocktail of ignorance and ideology and did not do what I could have to uh, try to that point uh, to have um, spoken more, more forcefully about 
about um, what needed to be done, which was not the path that the Harper government uh, took. So what changed my views? Well, I was uh, back at my job at UBC, uh, teach criminal law, and I was literally driving to and from work every day. And I was continuing to hear and increasingly hear stories of people who were overdosing and dying in, in Vancouver and, and the sort of surrounding communities and regions. And back then, this is around 2015, 16, they were actually talking about individual people. Imagine that, like, we're not doing that anymore. Like, when's the last time you heard, like, maybe once in a while, but you're not hearing that anymore. You're just hearing numbers and you're hearing 27,000 is the number right now. 27,000 Canadians have died of illicit drug overdose since then, since 2016. But when I first started getting concerned about this issue, they were talking about people. It would be individuals who were fathers or mothers, sisters, uh, you, you name it. And uh, it was this kind of shock. And it struck me, you know, um, I was like, this sounds like a bad Batman movie plot. Like, uh, you know, there's some talk, right? doesn't it? Like there's these, this toxic drug that's killing homeless people. Like that's, it sounds like a Lex Luthor kind of scheme. And I, I remember thinking, this is weird. Like something's going on. Like, I, you know, I, I wasn't following the issue closely, but I'm like, this is a, there's a trend happening. And sure enough, of course, the BC uh, government declared the opioid crisis to be a public health emergency in 2016. And it, it is still a public health emergency uh, declared in this province. And so I pulled over my car literally to the side of the road one morning as I heard yet another uh, story like this in, during this period. And I'd been going through a real kind of, I would say kind of, mid, I'll say midlife crisis and also kind of a re rehashing of my own kind of use and my own uh, part of that, of course, is you, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct yourself. And that included my spiritual side. And, you know, I was, I've spoken before, this before, but I don't think you can understand my personal transformation with this piece that it was for me was a very much part of my spiritual journey. You know, um, I was raised, you know, going to church, thought of myself as a Christian, like a lot of conservatives do. There's, you know, Christians who are, who are what we'd say is very, very uh, far left socialist even. Right. And just so we're clear, like there's quite a, a spectrum, but, that sort of um, the capital E evangelical Christian uh, movement in the States and Canada has been very much supportive of tough on crime. Right. And so I, um, <clears throat> I was going through a real crisis of, of faith and, and came to realize that I really, I really wasn't a follower of Jesus, you know, a guy who said, blessed are the merciful, you know, uh, whoever's without the sin throw the first stone, that kind of stuff. Boy, mm -hmm. that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like tough on crime to me. Okay. Um, and so I was, I literally, you know, prayed just very short prayer. I just prayed for a heart of compassion. I said, like, God, help me care for these people who are dying. They're dying in my community. Like, I was part of this system that that clearly is part of the problem. And certainly, at least at that point, I knew it wasn't helping. Like, the war on drugs is not helping things. It's pro it's probably part of the problem. But at least I know I knew it wasn't helping. It wasn't working. I knew that in, in, inherently. Some people aren't even there yet on the conservative side. And um, I didn't end there. I then had a had a speech I had to give a few weeks later. Um, at an event, a, a Christian a legal uh, event, uh, and I actually threw my notes in the garbage. And all I did is talk about the opioid crisis. I didn't know anything about it. And I just said, look, there are thousands of people dying in this, in our community, in our city, in our province, and we need to do something about it. And I reached out to people in the law school. I said, anyone researching the opioid crisis? It's in BC. It's this, at that point already, it was killing more people than homicide, suicide, car accidents, and accidental pharmaceutical overdoses combined. And this isn't a criticism, anyone. it's just crickets, there's no one. Then I went on Twitter and posted, you know, because I follow tons of you know, legal academics, anyone researching this topic, like from the criminal justice side, again, nobody. And so I thought, boy, there's only like a few dozen criminal law professors in the country. Like, what are we doing here? And so I said, I'm going to go and research this. 
And so I very quickly uh, raised uh, research funds to go ahead. A, a donor that came out of that event, um, private donor who just wanted to be anonymous. He literally was like, here's some money to go interview people and do transcripts and travel, um, funded the research. And I got the ethics approval, which was a huge process because um, I had to get four different health authorities to agree. And I went out and I started talking to people and I went to overdose uh, prevention sites and I met people there. I spoke with um, people like um, Leslie McBain with Mom Stop the Harm, whose son overdosed and, you know, heard from them directly. People who use drugs, who shared with me uh, what it was like. I also talked to, I talked to judges, Crown prosecutors, um, defense lawyers, the police, the Canada Border Services Agency, uh, First Nations Health Authority, um, Indigenous harm reduction organizations, undercover cops, you name it, anyone, addictions medicine experts, anyone and everyone who had some experience or uh, had been impacted by the opioid crisis, I went to them and spoke with them and met with them. And I also read the research. And it was a complete change of, it didn't happen all at once. Um, but it, over the process, uh, it was it led to a complete change of heart and mind. And that for me is, I think, really key. This isn't about more head knowledge. It was about actually this heart transformation of seeing in people who are using substances the need to have compassion and care for them and greater understanding of what brought them to that place in their life and what we could do that would 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 possibly help them. So that's how how the journey kind of worked out. And has it been hard to publicly change your position? I mean, I think of things that I've changed my position on. I don't think it's been anything this big or or this fundamental. I mean, that has to maybe rub old colleagues the wrong way or, or bring you into conflict with the old allies. And I mean, I guess it, it also can open you up to attacks by people who disagree with you or who, who might use you know, we hear the flip flop in in politics a lot, but sometimes changing changing your position is is actually the sign of learning and growing and stuff. But has there been has it been hard to do that? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I'm happy to answer your question, and I, I but I don't want to make this a sub story about poor me, right? Um, you know, so uh, just to put that on the table first. But I do think it's a legitimate question, and I do think it's a it's an issue because if we want people to change their views, we, we need to make some space for that. But in the same breath, I want to say in the same sentence, there needs to be accountability for positions taken and harm caused. And so, yeah, I mean, it was like recently as like, it doesn't happen every day, but as recently as yesterday, someone on, on Twitter, you know, fair enough said like, uh, are you donating any of the profits of your book, even to help people like you need to make reparations and all this stuff. And I responded to them. I said, well, uh, yes, I have donated some of the prop, uh, pro- profits of proceeds of the book to organizations that are supporting surviving family members. And I talked about, you know, continuing to sort of publicly repudiate these policies. I'm calling out, you know, politicians, uh, liberal party as well. We could talk about what the current government's doing as well. We need to be called out too. But uh, you mentioned that article with Kenny and Polly. My teaching, you can talk to my students in the last couple of years. We this year had an addictions medicine expert in and we had a whole class on decriminalizing drugs. And we're, you know, it's front and center, but it's not enough. I mean, I'm, this is part of an ongoing thing. So yeah, I mean, you basically end up in the middle, uh, largely criticized by both sides, right? So, uh, you know, I was already per- persona non grata within the conservative movement, you know, kind of testifying, um, you know, during a federal election uh, regarding the prime minister's office and his affairs, um, you know, and then publicly saying he lost the moral authority to govern like a week before the election he lost. I mean, that's not going to ingratiate you, but I <laughs> you know, obviously did think I, I spoke truth and I, I, I did that and I hope I will continue to. And 
So I didn't, uh, being freed of that was really valuable, actually. And I think that made space, actually. And um, yeah, I sort of view, um, I won't say people who are lightly involved in politics, but people who are heavily involved in politics, it, it can become your life. It becomes your social network. It becomes your friends. It becomes people who you spend more time with in your own family. It's your source of income and employment. It's your vocation. It's your identity. You're following the charismatic leader and there's an ideological package you have to agree to, even if you only really got interested because of a couple of issues. And if you don't, you're subject to shunning. If I take it the word politics and insert and say it was something else, you, what I just actually described as a cult. And so that's part of the issue with political life in, I think, not just Canada, but elsewhere, uh, is it doesn't leave room for public dissent. Uh, and we see that with party discipline, but we also see that with incentives that are within parties, how ideologically pure people are like literally i've heard that language and that like think about that language for a second how ideologically pure you are that is like terrifying language that's isn't that disturbing to hear anyway so getting out of the the, the cult of politics and it's not just about the, i've only known you know, a couple of parties in my life all on the conservative side and i don't identify with them anymore and i haven't had a membership in the party and i won't i won't uh, my, my views have changed so much that I, I wouldn't do that. You know, that was, that was actually valuable. So in terms of that, yeah, I definitely did take some, some flack and have had some criticism, but the main approach that's used, um, is to completely ignore you, uh, to not even respond to you and to shun you and to be basically banished. And in a sense that does, I will say that I won't say hurts more, but that bothers me more. I kind of do wish that there was a response and I think they know that and it's also an issues management tool to ignore, right? That's a, that's issues management 101 is ignore, 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 don't respond. So like if premier Kenny or Pierre Pauly have made a response to my op-ed or a tweet naming me and you know, that would be, that then becomes a news story and, and they know that. So they're, they're just trying to ignore, they don't even want to engage. So there's quite a lot of, you know, I think cowardice on that part, I would say too. Yeah. Um, I think that, Cowardice is a good word because, I mean, we've talked and I've written a lot about conservative policies when it comes to legislation and, and policies around drug issues, but there's a lot of lost opportunity and a lot that's not being done on the other side of the political spectrum too. We've had this this liberal government just introduce a bill that promises to, to do a lot, um, repeals some mandatory minimum sentences, and talks a good game on drug policy, but I, I think has been rightly criticized for, for not going far enough. I mean, the, the solution, it seems, the legislative solution from, from this government is to give you know, the police the discretion not to, to charge for certain minor offenses and to encourage prosecutors not to prosecute certain minor offenses. But it is a very small and incremental step towards decriminalization and totally changing how we look at drug issues with safe supply, removing these health issues from the criminal code. And the problem with these sort of incremental solutions is that you know people don't lead incremental lives and people who are falling victim to, to overdose and the harms of, of criminalization don't die incremental deaths either. And so it's, you know, these small baby steps and this incremental approach is leaving a lot of people in very dangerous circumstances. And I often worry that there's an opportunity cost. There's, there's only so much time on the legislative calendar. There's only so much political capital. And if you do only a little bit now, it probably means that not much more is going to be done in the future. So having criticized the, the conservative approach of, you know, tough on crime, deterrence, criminalization, 
and looking at the current government solution, do you think we're this is enough or, or what do you think the next step should be in terms of, of how we deal with this deadly public health emergency? Yeah, I mean, I'll be very direct. The Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government, aided and abetted by the Conservative opposition, is continuing to criminalize drug users full stop. There is, you know, incremental is, is I think, uh, yeah, is, is correct, but it's also polite for what they're doing. We are this far into the opioid crisis. We're, we're, we're talking now, in, you know, we're in June of 2022. And I mentioned this, this thing kicked off actually in 20, 2012 and 2013. If you look at the overdose death charts, that's when they begin the upward tick. So we're actually a decade into this opioid epidemic in Canada. And we're still having debates about like whether the police should be the ones to set thresholds for possession. And like, that's what the government literally just did this last couple of weeks is that's what they set for the BC uh, decriminalization pilot. So we know the research is clear that decriminalize that criminalizing people who use drugs contributes to stigma, which contributes to them using alone, which makes them substantially at greater risk of, of overdosing and dying from contaminated street, street drugs. Uh, we know that from the research that criminalizing people who use drugs and, and having police involvement, particularly at the street level, even if it is discretionary, uh, causes people to use drugs more quickly. If you see the police walking down the street or see a cruiser and you're, you've got drugs on you or you're in the middle of using them, what's the fastest way to get rid of those? It's to inject them into your body or to inhale them or to swallow them. And that's what people, that's what the research shows people do. And that using faster, using alone, uh, those are the exact opposite of public health advice. So, uh, you know, let's, let's just stack these up for, for, for a minute and talk about what would a, you know, a public health approach to this issue look like? And what does a criminal justice approach look like? And they are completely diametrically opposed. And we are spending billions of dollars on both. So we're spending billions of dollars to have completely contradictory um, policies. So the, the leading advice right now for preventing overdose deaths is to not use alone. That's the, that's the public health advice. You'll see posters and you'll see, you know, education campaigns and, and all of that. Don't use alone. The criminal justice system is if you have a, if there is a witness to you in possession of any quantity of drugs in Canada today, then you're committing a crime. So by definition, using with someone else means there's a witness to your offense at a minimum. Okay. Not, you know, there's plenty more beyond that comes from that. Next, you go to things like go slow is one, right? That's a public health advice. Go slow, take your time dosing up slowly. And the reason for that is because as I learned from undercover uh, officers who test street drugs and from people who are with street-based organizations who do testing of drugs and from drug squads who do, you know, raids of drug labs, we have a completely contaminated street drug supply. Every street drug is contaminated uh, or maybe with fentanyl or carfentanil, which are synthetic opioids, right? If people aren't aware they're made in labs, they don't naturally occur. And they are thousands of, they're hundreds of times more potent than, and thousands of times more potent than morphine. And so you don't know what you're getting. And on any given day from any given you know, dealer, you may be getting 1% or 90%. They, they, there's no quality control. Really, quite literally, the police have told me they find kitchen blenders being used to mix buffers like caffeine in with fentanyl powder. And we're talking about grains of sand. That's how many, how much can make the difference between a fatal overdose or not. You're talking about grains of sand. And so that's why people are encouraged when they are using street drugs to go slow, right? Take your time, dose up slowly. Again, if you're criminalizing people, the incentive is to use, um, use more quickly, get it over with, get it done before anyone finds out 
we could go on, but I'll give you a few more examples. Um, the leading advice on how to, let's talk about harm reduction. You know, we've known for decades now, having uh, needle exchanges is really crucial for preventing communicable disease transmission. Well, what do we do in the criminal justice system? And you tell, you could tell me more than, than I could tell you. I could ask you how many people, you know, if you represented her, do you know who've had conditions that they not have drug paraphernalia on them? Right. Which is everything. Like everything is drug paraphernalia. It's not just needles, it's pipes, it's baggies, it's anything that can be used to consume drugs or store them or make it safer to, to, uh, to consume drugs. All of that can be paraphernalia. Yeah, there you go. So there are probably, I don't have numbers on this, but there's, we've got to be in the scope of having, I'll say probably millions of uh, clean syringes have been distributed through public health harm reduction measures throughout Canada. Okay. And yet people who are on conditions, and we know the criminal justice system disproportionately uh, ensnares people with substance use disorders, we're telling them not to possess those things. Okay. P.S. A naloxone kit, you know, I've got one and people can get them for free from in most provinces now without no questions asked. Most places, not all. What does it have? It's got syringes. And, and if you think about nasal naloxone, those are really expensive and not a lot of people have them. So someone who has uh, opiate use disorder, who has overdoses or risk of overdosing and is subject to conditions, they not have drug paraphernalia. You're, you're literally telling them don't have the antidote to your overdose. That is like telling someone who has a peanut allergy, don't have an EpiPen. And you're, you're criminal. It's a criminal offense. You're going to end up back in the system if you have an EpiPen. So it all comes back to this idea is, are we dealing with the criminal law issue, the use of drugs, or are we dealing with a public health issue? And it is beyond doubt that this is a public health issue. And the lip service given to it by politicians that it is, and that they're treating it that way, um, and also, by the way, public health officials federally say we're treating it as a public health issue. They're lying. Teresa Tam was on Twitter the other day saying we're treating this as a public health issue. And she was called out rightly by advocates saying, no, you're not. She needs to be speaking out on this issue. She's um, incredibly disappointed with federal uh, health officials on this policy. Here in BC, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's our provincial health officer, has come out for very strongly in favor of decriminalization, our chief coroner. Uh, Lisa Lapointe has done so as well for years. The Canadian Chiefs of Police Association supports decriminalizing uh, small amounts of drugs for simple possession. And yet you have, uh, again, these politicians making political calculations about when and how and how much we're going to decriminalize. And nowhere do you see that more apparent than in the cynicism of the House of Commons, the Liberals and most of the Liberals and all of the Conservatives voting against a bill by the NDP to decriminalize simple possession that was just voted down. And instead, the government brought in this half-baked plan in BC to decriminalize partly, but not really, that could end up backfiring because it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. The, the de- decriminalization in partial decriminalization in, in BC, that program, it just strikes me as so odd that the federal government doesn't have the courage to bring in national legislation. It it is so fundamentally unfair that even where there are small benefits to the to the the partial decriminalization in BC, that someone who is addicted or using in BC is treated differently than someone in downtown Toronto or Ottawa or Halifax. If we're going to have a federal government with control over the the criminal law, the national the national legislation, 
it just seems fundamentally unfair to, to treat people who are in, some of whom are in, in very marginalized circumstances, some of whom who have made choices, because there's certainly lots of individuals who make a personal choice to use drugs and, and you know, not all, not all people who, um, who use drugs are sort of the like, stereotypical living on the street um, sort of users that, that, you know, quite often we think of or, or the media makes us think of. It just is shocking to me that the federal government is standing idly by and doesn't have the courage to bring in national standards, national legislation and treat everyone equally, no matter where they live. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, there is no other area in the criminal code where you have this like buffet choice. <laughs> We're not even talking at the provincial level too. The, the way the government's slicing and dicing the politics of this is saying, well, a city could apply for decrim, and they are. Uh, city of Toronto has, uh, Edmonton and Montreal are we're considering it or at various stages of that. You know, we don't get to sort of pick and choose like what is criminalized and what what isn't any other area, which really does smack of, of political intervention. Um, I want to come back to something you said about choice, though, because right? I think it's I think it is unpack to unpack a bit. I know you're not saying that people who use drugs are all of them are choosing. You didn't say that, but you did mention that some people are choosing. So I just want to talk about how many people are choosing, right? And when I when I sort of look at the overdose statistics de uh, death rates, we had a extensive. When I say this has been studied, I mean they they went to every single person who overdosed and died in BC. We're talking thousands of people in a death panel review and looked at all of the factors and considerations, and they reported back. And there's been two of these. And what they found is that uh, a couple of things I'd point out. One is that the vast majority of, of folks who overdosed and died were, were long-term drug users, people who have substance use disorders, um, people who are using, well, occasionally. So we had examples, tragically, of people who are at a wedding. Uh, there's a case I talk about in my book in the Okanagan. And it's literally someone just goes out and buys some what they think is uh, cocaine, I think, from a dealer. And of course, it's laced with fentanyl. And there are like literally people like just on the floor in the hotel room. And there happened to be a nurse. Or I tell the story in, in my book, Overdose. It's a real, real case. So we definitely have have those. And in fact, my book leads with a, a group of uh, teenagers, uh, multiple you know people from you know just trying out drugs for the first time. Um, but mo for the most part, we're dealing with actually it's people who are long term people who have substance use disorder. And so why do people use, that was a big part of this transformation of my kind of view. Cause I think there's this tendency people to think, well, yeah, we kind of generally may, maybe have an addiction and maybe it's hard to not use, but people should stop using. I mean, that's the kind of mentality that certainly conservatives have. And a lot of us, if we're honest and haven't had exposure to addiction in our lives or in someone close to us, we may have that view. Well, it should just stop. You know, the, the definition quite literally of an addiction is that you continue to use despite wanting to stop. And the, the clinical diagnosis for things like opioid use disorder, it's recognized as compulsive. So medically, this is considered a chronic relapsing condition. And so you can't just simply stop using. And when people are put in situations where voluntarily or involuntarily, they're unable to use substances they have an addiction to like opioids, their tolerance rapidly declines. So this happens in in custody. This happens in detox only uh, recovery facilities. And the research shows that dramatically increases the risk of overdose death. So the other thing that the research that the BC Death Panel Review found was that the vast majority of people overdosed in BC had been in provincial corrections. And the greatest risk is within two weeks of being released. Uh, you're 50 times more likely to die of an overdose after you've been released from prison than the general population. And in Alberta, Premier Kenny uh, released uh, statistics just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know why he thinks this helps his case. I really don't. He said 50% 
half of all Albertans who had died of overdoses in Alberta since 2017 had been recently in provincial custody. So what that tells me is that criminalizing people who use drugs is a death sentence. And this goes way beyond the simple possession thing, because people who are in prison who have opioid use disorder can be in there on breaches, but they can be in there for any any offense, right? So this is not just about, oh, all we need to do is decriminalize simple possession, then we can move on. Uh, in my book, I outline, there's a good half dozen things we need to do to fully decriminalize people. It's not just about decriminalizing the substance, it's de- decriminalizing people. And so we, we have a lot to do in the criminal justice system really doesn't understand this issue. Um, I don't know about, you know, when you were in law school, but certainly I never had a addictions physician come in and talk to us about substance use. Like what we teach students is the black letter law in most courses. And we may blend in a bit of, isn't it awful that there's disproportionate incarceration of indigenous uh, people and, oh, and, and black folks now too, oh, that's been added in the last couple of you know, years. But, you know, where's the evidence, where's the information and training on trauma? Where's the information about, you know, mental health issues and the connection between early childhood trauma, which we know is a big driver for substance use to begin with. So those are some of the things that I'm also doing in my work now. It's around changing legal education, changing how we teach lawyers and educate them and the policy level too, of course, and and changing public opinion, because ultimately that's who politicians do respond to. There's something called the Overton window. And if you come across this, I only was introduced to recently, actually, but I kind of inherently knew this. And it's that politicians are only going to make decisions within a narrow band of what is going to basically keep them in, in their jobs. And so one of the roles that, you know, I see myself playing is helping to actually, you know, shift that window. And so by doing more public education advocacy, uh, writing, you know, books like in the popular press, like Overdose with a mainstream publisher that's people can buy cheaply for 20 bucks, not from a legal publisher that's going to want to charge $150 and doing free podcasts and, you know, media and stuff like that, social media and media. Um, we see public attitudes and opinions changing on drug policy. They are they are shifting towards decriminalization. In fact, the majority of Canadians now do favor uh, decriminalizing um, simple possession. And I think that that's only going to continue to rise. So it's either going to be through there or through the courts, because I do also believe that criminalizing people who use drugs is a clear uh, violation of the charter. Yeah, I think maybe the last thing that I want to touch on, and, and that's a, a great lead. It's almost like I gave you an outline and we're actually following a, a plan here, which has never happened on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, we started off by talking about your change of mind. I mean, we need to change the laws, which means that we need to change the mind of the people in power. And as you said, the evidence has been clear for a long time um, about incarceration, about drug policy, about the the, the cost and the harms of, of our, our, the way that we currently structure things. And it doesn't seem like politicians are responding to that evidence. I mean, when I when I was talking about minimum sentences over and over again, um, you know, talking about the concept of general deterrence, there there wasn't any em- empirical research or studies that showed that minimum sentences work. And bang my head against the wall trying to quote all these uh, all, all the academic research, and it didn't change anyone's mind. And so, if we can't change the politicians' minds, if even with a government that likes to likes to, I think a lot of the time pretend that it's very progressive on on some of these social issues. What we're getting isn't good enough. And so it sounds like, and maybe reading between the lines, what we need to do is, as you've said, change the public's mind. Change is not going to come from Parliament Hill or from laws that that are policies or public health officials, but it's going to come from the public finally demanding that, that we have legislation that is holistic, that deals with the root causes of 
of some of the harms that that treats trauma appropriately and that ultimately that that is is what's going to be moves the politicians so we started talking about you changing your mind can we change politicians minds or do we have to look at changing the public's minds like how do we get to a better place i guess you have two minutes to fix the problem and tell us what to do Boy, I wish I could. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the direction we need to go in. We we refer to politicians as political leaders, right? They're they're leaders. They're actually not. They're political decision makers. They're not leaders. Um, they follow their the, their voters. And what that what has to happen is it has to become politically unacceptable to criminalize people who use drugs. That's where we need to get to. And it should be, but it's not. And we see this shift happening happened on many other issues. So if you think of just countless other major shifts in, in various social issues throughout our lifetime, they happened in in part because through the courts and that, but the courts also were following the public. You know, sometimes the courts were really at the leading edge of public opinion, maybe pushing past public opinion. Um, but they, you know, as you know, they got security tenure, so the judges are insulated and not getting fired for making those calls. So I do think that we need to start with ourselves. And I actually don't think the first place to go is to go, hey, how can I convince someone else? Um, no matter where someone's at in their journey, um, I think you start with yourself. And you know, certainly people who have already done this journey know what I'm talking about. And they share this with me. They say, hey, before I had these views, but then my the, the most tragic, of course, is that you know I have a family member who passed away, who died, a son or daughter. And then, and then I had to really look at like what, how did this happen? You know, they're a criminal, really? Like those 27,000 people that were dearly loved, we deem them to be criminals. And that's how the law views them today, really? Like these are people who are hurting and had had, a, had an addiction. So I think for, for the rest of us who haven't gone through that journey or transformation yet, or maybe think that we're progressive, we need to really, I think, examine our own hearts and look at ways that, that we could, within our own circles of influence, begin to raise this issue. And um, and not not let politicians get away with it, right? There's more stigma for people who use drugs than for any other class of individuals. The research shows that even more than people with leprosy. So talk about an issue which is difficult. And the reason why we don't see a, a response that's proportionate to this public health crisis, in contrast to something like you know COVID nineteen, um, more people actually died of overdose deaths in the in the first year of the COVID nineteen pandemic in BC than of uh, COVID. So you had more overdose deaths, substantially more actually. And it's because who, whose lives matter, who are, who are drug users and whether, whatever their socioeconomic status, there's still so much blame, shame, and secrecy around that. You'll see in obituaries, you know, so-and-so was, you know, 32, 45, 50 years old and they, they passed away suddenly, right? Very rarely will you read an overdose, uh, an overdose language used in there, but um, that's often what's, what's happened. And so I heard that from, from parents, um, very painful, you know, you're, child dies of cancer, you're surrounded with support and love in many cases. I know not all, but generally that people are going to have sympathy for you, right? Mm -hmm. If it's overdose, you're going to, oh, you know, there's judgment and they know, they know that and they feel that. And so it makes it really hard for people to advocate. I'm glad there are advocates. So I would say um, profiling their work and supporting them, uh, contributing to their work financially and, and, you know, re retweeting their stuff and, you know, contact, I do think the contact the MP thing, it makes a difference. I can tell you kind of a little bit inside baseball that, you know, um, even cabinet ministers, the prime minister of Canada, they are told they're given briefings on the numbers of people calling in, writing in, tweeting in on all issues. And they literally will tell them, you know, 52% of people wrote in saying they support decriminalizing and 48 don't. 
they they get that that's data for them they use that to try to do their keep their jobs i'll say there are a few politicians that are in it for the right reasons and are willing to lose their jobs over taking the right uh, position i will say in my experience they're kind of few and far between to be honest and i think it's a very difficult position and i don't have a job where i have to get reelected i mean i i don't but i think that's a problem with our 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 system is that we do have people who are put in these positions and they can't do that so Unless we're willing to continue to speak out against policies that are killing people, we are going to continue to see this this perpetuate. I do believe one day there's going to be some accountability on this stuff. And, you know, names are going to get named. And I just don't want that to take any longer than it already does. Um, it's, it's, it's unconscionable to me that we are continuing to punish uh, people who have substance use disorders. It, I'm speechless sometimes uh, looking at, at what's happened and what I've seen in court, the the number of clients that I've had who have passed away and, and the total lack of appropriate response or legislation for the crisis. Uh, I also think that uh, a thing that we need to do is continue talking and following the people that we disagree with on, on the issue. I think that that's really important. And, you know, I'm really happy that you were able to to join and talk to me, someone who I used to agree, disagree with. I didn't stop follow, following your work, even though we disagreed. And I mean, I think that I'm better off from hearing your perspective and journey. And I mean, I think that that's important not to, to silo ourselves either, because uh, I think change is possible and change is necessary. And I'm glad that you were uh, able to take time out of your early Saturday morning to talk to me about um, your change in opinion on, on this really, really important issue. Thanks, Michael. It's really, too, really generous of you. And uh, I appreciate the chance to, to talk with you today. Thanks so much for doing this. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman. And you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You gotta equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're gonna get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit.